0: I should like to call your attention this evening to two verses in the Gospel according to St. Matthew. The first is in the fourth chapter of the Gospel according to St. Matthew and in verse 23. And the second is in the twenty-fourth chapter in verse 14. The fourth chapter of Matthew, verse 23. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, And preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sicknesses and all manner of disease among the people. And again in the 24th chapter, verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Now, I take those two verses together because, as you notice, one of them was at the beginning of our Lord's ministry and one towards the end of his ministry. But they all make mention of the same thing, and that is the gospel of the kingdom. And it is to that that I want to call your attention this evening. We are engaged on a number of Sunday evenings like this. In considering some of these things that we are told about the gospel in the New Testament itself, and we are doing that, as I'm reminding you, Sunday by Sunday, in order that we may really know what it is. The world is in terrible straits, and what it needs above everything is the gospel. But what is the gospel? Is there clarity of understanding? What is it really? What does it teach? What does it offer? What does it give? And this is the great tragedy of the hour, this confusion in the church as well as outside as to what the gospel of Jesus Christ really is. Now, my position as I'm expounding it is this, that I know nothing about the gospel apart from what I have in this book. To me, the fact that I happen to be alive in the 20th century doesn't make the slightest difference. I've referred To two men in my announcement, one of them who lived 400 years ago, he preached the same gospel as I am trying to preach. I referred to the second man, George Whitfield. He preached exactly the same gospel. Because the two men expounded the scriptures. And we know nothing about these things apart from the scriptures. There is nothing that is quite so fatuous as to feel that because we happen to live in 1964 that we need something new. That is, of all the fallacies about the gospel, the most fatuous and the most ridiculous. Time has got nothing to do with this. The very essence of the gospel is that it is something that comes out of eternity into time. Now, we've been seeing that at great length. We've been seeing it as we considered especially this great term about the gospel, the mystery of the gospel. And now, as we approach this season of Christmas, and think again about the coming of the Son of God into this world, this whole element of mystery comes to us anew and afresh, and with a new urgency. So we are going to look at this particular statement concerning the gospel which is contained in this phrase. It's one of many, as those who attend here regularly will will realize. But it is a very important term. And I say that for this good reason. It is the term that our Lord himself used most frequently. When he began to preach, this is what he preached about. He preached to this effect, that the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand, he said. Repent and believe the gospel. So, because he himself referred to the gospel in these terms so frequently, it obviously is of the greatest possible importance. He starts with it, and as I've shown you from the 24th chapter of this same gospel, it is the thing that he emphasized at the end. Nobody can read the pages of the four gospels without noticing that our Lord was constantly preaching about this kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, It was the very center of the whole of his message. He said he'd come into the world in order to found and to establish the kingdom of God. That's his whole purpose. He says the time has come. It's fulfilled. It's arrived. The kingdom of God is at hand. Here it is. Now then, he said, this is what I want to tell you about. And he goes on, as I say, the referring to this constantly everywhere in all his preaching and teaching. You remember the occasion when addressing the Pharisees and scribes and others as it's recorded in the 16th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Luke. He puts it like this in verse 16. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, since this time, the kingdom of God is preached and every man presseth into it. He said, that's the thing now. This is the big thing. Before, under John the Baptist even, it was a question of law. But now, the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presseth into it. Or as it's reported in this 11th chapter of this gospel, according to St. Matthew, he says that uh, preaching this kingdom, the violent Take it by force. Now the question, therefore, that arises for us tonight is this. What does all this mean? The Son of God came into this world in connection with the kingdom of God. He came to introduce it, to usher it in. He's been sent, he says, to do that. So at once in his preaching, he begins to talk about this. And he keeps on doing so, emphasizes it at the end. Now then, what's it all about? What does it mean? Let me try to answer this question. Let me answer it first of all by just giving you a plain and a simple definition. The kingdom of God means the rule of God, the reign of God. That's true of an earthly kingdom, isn't it? A kingdom suggests at once a king, the place in which the king has rule and authority and power. That is the definition of a kingdom. It's exactly the same here. It means that realm in which God rules and God reigns. God governs. God is over all. That is the basic definition of what is meant by this term, the kingdom. The gospel concerning the kingdom. It's good news, remember. We must go on emphasizing that gospel means good news. And our Lord says that he sent into the world in order to bring this good news concerning the kingdom, the kingdom of God, the reign and the rule of God. Now then, why is it important that we should look at the gospel from this particular aspect and standpoint? And it seems to me there are three main answers to that question. The first is this. This particular designation or term reminds us of the greatness of the gospel. You know, one of the most tragic things about mankind is that it tends to reduce everything, makes everything small. And that is what men are always in danger of doing with this great and glorious gospel. Now, let's be quite honest and frank and admit this, that there are many Christian people who have tended to do this. There are so many people who always talk about the gospel in purely subjective terms. What I mean by that is this. If you ask them what it means to be a Christian, if you ask them to do what is called giving their testimony, they will almost invariably do so in some purely personal manner. They will say that they are glad to testify that the gospel has made them happy. The gospel has given them peace. The gospel has given them healing. The gospel has given them this, that, and the other. Well, this is all right. The gospel, thank God, does that. But you know, my dear friends, that isn't the whole of the gospel. And very often, in just putting it like that, we are guilty of reducing the gospel and its glory to the level of the cults. That's what the cults are always saying, isn't it? Believe me, says the teaching of the cults, and you'll get rest. You'll no longer worry. You will lose your insomnia. And you'll feel that you're fit and strong and you'll have confidence in yourself. That's what the cults are always offering. You see, they start with men and they end with men. And they're agencies which are designed to give us something. And so often the gospel is represented just in that way and as if it were something just designed to give us this, that or the other that we happen to need. I say thank God there are these personal and individual blessings in connection with the gospel. But this designation reminds us that that isn't the whole of the gospel by any means. In a sense, it's even the smallest part of it. Well, what is this gospel? Well, the gospel reminds us in this very term that the whole world is involved in this matter. The whole cosmos, the whole universe. The Son of God didn't only come into the world in order to give this, that, or the other to you and to me, who happen to be Christians, and to offer it to others. That's the smallest part of this salvation. The gospel itself is something big, something vast. Let me put it in this form. The most important thing about every one of us tonight is not our needs, our individual personal needs. It's our whole position. Our whole position in the universe, our whole position under God, face to face with God. That's the most important thing. Now, that's the thing we all tend to forget, of course. We are so immersed in our own particular problems that we tend to forget our whole position. Now, the gospel, described as the gospel of the kingdom, reminds us of this immediately. That the gospel is not something primarily concerned with our particular needs, but with the whole condition of the universe. Now, let me put to you, put before you the great statement of this made by the Apostle Paul in the Epistle to the Ephesians. Listen to this. He's talking about this gospel, and he puts it like this. Having made known, he's talking about God, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself. Now here it is in the 10th verse of the first chapter of the epistle to the Ephesians. That in the dispensation of the fullness of time, he might gather up together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. Now that's the purpose of the gospel. And that is what is meant in a sense by the gospel of the kingdom. The Son of God came into this world not only to deal with my particular needs, he has come to do something about the whole universe, things in heaven, things on earth, and as Paul adds elsewhere, things under the earth as well. You see, this is a vast, it's a great gospel, the gospel of the kingdom of God, the reign and the rule of God. Or let me put that in another form. There is, as we are reminded by this designation, a universal character to the gospel. I mean this. You know one of the commonest attitudes towards the gospel today is one which comes to us and says, all right, uh, you say you're a Christian and that it gives you great joy and happiness and so on. Well, all right, says the man, I'm I'm, I'm glad to hear that. If it does help you, well, I'm, I'm glad to hear it. All's well and good. But he says, you know, I'm not interested. But he says, you needn't take umbrage at that and you mustn't try to persuade me to believe what you've got. He says, you don't understand. This whole question of religion is, in the last analysis, purely a question of psychology. It's a question of temperament. There are certain people like you, he says, who obviously have got a religious temperament, religious complex, if you like. You are interested in this sort of thing, this kind of thing appeals to you, and you like it, and you're helped by it. Well, all right, he says, carry on with it. I'm not. I don't happen to be that type. If I were that type, no doubt I'd be interested in religion as you were interested in religion. But I'm not, you know. I get much more out of nature. I go for a walk on Sunday, and there I get what you get in your chapels listening to your gospel. Or I get it in music, says another. I get it in arts, says a third. And on and on they go. And they think that thus, you see, they've they've answered the whole question. They they, they don't object to us, but uh, they're just not, not like that. Now, here's the answer to that. This is the gospel of the kingdom. In other words, we mustn't start with the individual. We mustn't start looking at it in terms of the individual. We must start with the general. And the moment you do that, you will find that it's something that speaks to everybody. Doesn't matter what his temperament is. Doesn't matter what his psychological makeup. It doesn't matter what he is by nature, what his likes or dislikes are. What the gospel says is this, that every individual, whatever he is, is a creature under God and is responsible to God. And the gospel is going to address him about that. You may be a quiet kind of person, you may be excitable. You may be very clever, you may be very dull. You may be very knowledgeable, you may be very ignorant, doesn't matter at all. The gospel says you're a man, and you're a responsible man and a God. And God is the ruler, and you are concerned with God. Whatever you may think or feel, it applies to everybody. The gospel of the kingdom. Now this is so tremendously important. You see, many people have reacted like this to a wrong presentation of the gospel. They've been given the impression that the gospel is something that's needed for certain types of people. They say there are people in London, besotted drunkards. People have gone wrong morally and so on. Well, they say they need this gospel of yours. But they say we, we've never done those things. We've always lived a good and a decent and a respectable life. And the gospel's got nothing to say with that. Now, people who say this quite seriously, I've heard it said many, many times. I think I've said from this pulpit before, one of the best things I've ever heard said about my own preaching was this, was said by a lady who once used to worship here. She said, you know, this man preaches to us as if we were sinners. She was amazed at that, that I should preach to her as if she was a sinner. The gospel was only for sinners. She wanted... A certain intellectual entertainment and to be built up. But uh, she was not a sinner and to suggest that she was. This this is a terrible thing to do. Now there are many people like that. Now the answer to all that is this. That whether you were a sinner in the terms of the world or not doesn't matter. The thing that matters is what are you like in the presence of God. And your temperament doesn't matter at all. Whether you're musical or whether you're turned deaf, it doesn't matter. You are a being, a human being, and you're before God, and you've got to meet him, and you've got to answer him. It's a gospel about a rule, a reign. Or let me put it like this in the third form. The gospel of the kingdom, the term the gospel of the kingdom, reminds us of what is, after all, the ultimate purpose of the gospel. And there's a great deal of confusion about this. What is the ultimate purpose of the gospel? I wonder what your answer would be to that question. Is the ultimate purpose of the gospel to make us happy? Or to do this, that, or the other to us? No, it's not. That's not the ultimate purpose. The ultimate purpose of the gospel is to make us obedient to God. That's its ultimate purpose. The ultimate purpose of the gospel is to bring us to a condition in which we shall glorify God and live to his praise and keep his commandments. That's the object of the gospel. Well, I know that incidentally in doing that, it does many another thing. And thank God for these other things. But Christ came into this world primarily to bring us to God. To establish the rule and the reign of God. And that is why I say that people who think they're very respectable and that there's nothing wrong with them are possibly the greatest sinners in this world tonight. Why? Because they see no need of God. The self-contained person is ultimately the most hopeless person of all. There is no greater insult to God than to ignore him altogether. I'm not here to defend people who break the Ten Commandments and do so blatantly and fragrantly. But there is more hope for a sinner who knows he's a sinner than for a person who doesn't even recognize the being of God at all. That's the ultimate sin. And so, you see, we're reminded of that by this very term, the gospel of the kingdom. And this is the term that is most frequently to be found on the lips of, of our blessed Lord and Savior. Now I'm reminding you that he tells us that he came into this world in order to establish this kingdom. And that at once raises the fundamental question, why did he have to come into the world in order to do that? What's he mean by it? He's born a baby in Bethlehem to bring in the kingdom of God. Why did the Son of God have to leave the courts of heaven? Why do we consider this mystery of godliness? God was manifest in the flesh. Because it is the only way whereby he can bring in the kingdom of God. But why is this necessary, I ask? And in asking that question, I am asking the question of questions for this hour. Here's the question at the back of all your political questions. Here's the ultimate cause of all your political problems and every other kind of problem. Here's the ultimate explanation of all your sociological problems, every conceivable problem. Why did the Son of God have to come into this world to bring in this kingdom? Now, if you can't answer that question, it just means that you don't understand the message of the Bible. The great message of the Bible is really to answer that question. And I say again, you don't understand the problem of the world today unless you can answer that question. What does it mean? Well, it means this. This world has got into the wrong hands. It's as simple as that. God made it. He made it perfect. It's his world. He governed it. And men rejoiced in obeying him. Then came that fatal thing. You see, you don't begin to understand Christmas unless you understand the book of Genesis. The Bible is a book of beginnings. The original beginning, the creation. Then this new beginning. The whole of the Old Testament after the fall is waiting for a new beginning. And it comes. Old Testament, New Testament, new beginning. It's a book of beginnings. And this is why we are told everywhere in the Bible that the beginning is necessary. Our Lord himself taught this very plainly and very clearly. He said, the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost. What's lost? The world is lost. Man's lost. Man's lost his way. That's the whole trouble. The world, if you like, is a perpetual traffic jam. Everybody... Knocking into everybody else and nobody getting anywhere. That's the world. Seek and to save that which is lost. And it's the world that's lost. Well, listen to another way in which he puts it still more strikingly. Our Lord tells us that mankind is simply in the condition of a number of prisoners which are held captive. By a strong man armed, powerful, tyrannizing over others. Listen, when a strong man armed keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he shall come and overcome him, he taketh from him all his armor wherein he trusted and divideth his spoils. That's his way of describing himself. And the strong man armed is the devil. And the goods are mankind. The strong man armed keepeth his goods in peace. Think of it like a great castle with great walls all round it. And here is mankind. As we are in this chapel, we are allowed to walk in the back and forth along these aisles, and we can go up into the gallery and the top gallery, and we say, what wonderful freedom we've got! We can run along the aisles. We can run up the stairs. What wonderful freedom we've got! But the question is, can you get outside the building? The strong man armed keepeth his goods in peace. There's a limit to it all. There's a war. And he's a great tyrant. He's very strong. He's very powerful. Our Lord says that's the whole condition of the world. That's why he's come into the world. Nobody could deal with him. The patriarchs, the prophets, all the great men, they all stood up to this strong man armed. Not one of them could deal with him. He defeated them all. There is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and have come short of the glory of God. Now, this is, this is the whole of the biblical story, the biblical case. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Galatians, says, Blessed be our God and Father. Why? Well, because he saved us from this present evil world. That's what he has done. This world is an evil world. This present evil world. The apostle says again that the whole of mankind by nature is under what he calls the dominion of Satan. He tells the Colossians that they've been translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. You remember that on the road to Damascus, Saul of Tarsus met the risen Lord. And he said, I'm going to make you a witness and a minister. And I'm going to send you to the people, the Jews, and to the Gentiles. What for? To turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God. You see, these are the universal terms that are used right through the whole of the Bible. The apostle Paul indeed goes so far as to say this, that the devil is the God of this world. Why isn't this gospel preached? Why isn't it believed? And the answer the apostle gives is this, the God of this world hath blinded the eyes of them that believe, not lest they believe the glorious gospel of Christ. He tells the Ephesians, "You was he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past he walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Here's the state of the world and here's the only explanation of it. And you see, they go on and say something like this. The apostle again says to the Romans that the natural mind, that's to say men as he is by nature, is enmity against God. is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. That's just another way of saying that people are outside the kingdom of God. They don't recognize him, they don't obey him, they don't submit to his rule and to his reign. They're enemies, they're rebels, they're antagonistic. They're all against God. Unless you may think this is only the teaching of the Apostle Paul, listen to John. John in his first epistle, he says, the whole world lieth in the wicked one. And he uses a very strong term there. He says, the whole world now is in the embrace of the wicked one. He says, you are of God, little children. And that evil one toucheth you not, but the whole world lieth in the evil one. This is profound biblical psychology. This is the sole adequate explanation of the state of the world tonight. It is in the embrace of the devil, the god of this world, the prince of this world. And that's why it's living as it is. The devil instigates evil, he organizes it, he works in the minds of men, he works in their imaginations. Don't we all know something about this? You may wake up in the morning and thoughts come to you. You are not awake enough to think, but they came and they master you. They'll put you wrong for the whole day. They come to you at your most sacred moments. Where do they come from? The answer is this prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Now you see, this is the universal teaching of the Bible. The world is under the dominion of the devil. It's in the kingdom of darkness, in the kingdom of evil, the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of hell. That's where the world is tonight and it's behaving as such. Our Lord turned to the Pharisees and he said, you are of your father the devil and the works of your father ye will do. And it's just true of the world tonight as it was when he uttered those words nearly 2,000 long years ago. The world is doing the works of its father. And the father is the devil, hatred of God, loving that which is evil and wrong and foul, everything that is twisted and perverted. You don't believe this very well. Well, give you an explanation of it. You evolutionists, explain the state of the world tonight with all the teaching, the learning, the knowledge, the music, the good examples, and all we've had and boasted in all your civilization. Why is the world as it is? Here's the only answer. It's under the dominion of the devil, Satan, hell. And you know it's not merely true of men. Because of the fall of men, the whole universe has fallen. That's why I'm emphasizing at this moment this cosmic aspect of this great gospel which I'm privileged to preach to you. Listen to the Apostle Paul putting it like this. Looking out upon the troubled world of his first century which is so like the world of tonight, he says, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Then on he goes. The earnest expectation of the creature, the creation, waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature, the creation, was made the subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered, listen, from the bondage of corruption. The creature, the creation, the animals, everything in creation is in the bonds, the bondage of corruption. It shall be delivered, he says, from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Then he goes on, for we know, do you know this? That the whole creation is groaning and traveling in pain together until now. That's what he says about creation. And isn't it true? Nature red in tooth and claw. God didn't create a world like that. This is the result of men's disobedience. This is the result of the men being under the dominion of the devil and of Satan. Man's wrong and his mind is warped and antagonistic. But the whole of creation has fallen with him. Things in heaven, things on earth, things under the earth. Angels have fallen. The whole cosmos has fallen. Now, my dear friends, it's in the light of this you see that you begin to understand the meaning of this phrase, "The Gospel of the Kingdom of God." That's why the Son of God came into this world. We are all so ridden with pantomime, my dears, that we lose the glory of Christmas. beautiful picture, we say, wonderful conception, babe in you know, a Manger and in a cradle, let's have a crypt and let's play act about it all. what blindness, what ignorance, what childishness. The Son of God came into this world because of corruption. The bondage of corruption. Men by nature is in the bondage of corruption. We all are born in the bondage of corruption. We are all moral lepers. We are all moral failures. And we know it. Can you give up a sin just by deciding to do so? Don't you know something about the bondage of corruption in your own personal life? Where do these thoughts come from? Where do the imaginations arise? What's the matter with me? It's my heart that's evil. I'm in the bonds of corruption. And the whole universe, the whole cosmos is in the bondage of corruption. Now then, it is, I say, because of that that the Son of God left the courts of heaven and was born as that little babe in the stable in Bethlehem. He's come because of that. And why has he come? Well, he's come to restore it, to head it up again to the glory of God. Now his good news, you see, his preaching is that he has come to do this very thing. So we are told that he began From that time, Jesus began to preach. He's been baptized by John in the Jordan. The Holy Spirit has come upon him. He's then led of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. Forty days and forty nights. Back he comes and he begins to preach. And this is what he began to preach. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Or as it's put here, he went about all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and preaching the kingdom of God. He says, that's what I've come about. And he gives them proof that he knows what he's talking about and that he's got authority to say this. Is he able to restore the kingdom to God? He is. He's given proof of it. How has he given proof of it? Well, he gave proof of it in the temptation in the wilderness. It's all in this chapter. Here is the one who's defeated everybody. Here is the God of this world. Here's the prince of the power of the air. Here's the master of the realm of darkness. Here's the strong man armed. And he comes and in his fatal self-confidence he pits himself against this mighty person who's come in the form of a babe. And he comes with his sarcasm and he says, If thou be the Son of God, very well, give proof of it. And he is repulsed by a word. He's answered by a scripture. He's completely routed. Here is the first who is able... To meet the devil in single combat and defeat him and rout him. Here is one who can speak with authority. He conquers the master of evil. The controller of the bondage of corruption. The devil never found anything in him. Our Lord was able to say that at the end. Satan findeth nothing in me. He never wavered. He never fell. He never came near to it. He resisted him entirely without sin like us in every other respect, sin apart. But wait a minute, that isn't the only proof that he's given, that he is the one who can establish this kingdom and reign of God. He not only can defeat the enemy in this single combat, he can master the hordes and the minions of the devil. There they are, these people suffering from all manner of sickness and of disease, Those who were taken with diverse diseases and torments and those that were possessed with devils. And there's devil possession in the world still. Not merely men and women sinning, but the devils entering into them and controlling them and mastering them. Devil possession. It's on the increase in this country. Devil worship, devil possession. People selling themselves to the devil. And he grips them and controls them. And they're helpless in his hands. Here's one who can cast them out with extreme ease. And indeed, he even says that there's a very interesting account of him casting out a dumb devil, given in the 11th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Luke, in the one that contains the verse about the strong man armed. And they saw him casting out this devil, and some said he casteth out devils through Beelzebub, the chief of the devils, others tempting him, sought of him a sign from heaven. He Knowing their thoughts said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falleth. If Satan also be divided against himself, how shall his kingdom stand? Because you say that I cast out devils through Beelzebub, the chief of devils. And if I by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore shall they be your judges. Listen, but if I with the finger of God cast out devils, No doubt the kingdom of God is come upon him. And he did. He had authority over the devils. He has authority over diseases. He has authority over the wind and the sea and the storm and the rain. He's master. He has authority over men. Here he is addressing these men, following their usual work and employment. Two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother. He saw them casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he saith unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they straightway left their nets and followed him. The power, the authority, the command. And so with all others. Here is one who is a master of men, master of nature, master of demons, master of the devil. He proved it in his life. He proved it still more in his death upon the cross on Calvary's hill. Just before he died, he said, Now is the judgment of this world. Now is the prince of this world cast out. And he cast him out by dying. The devil thought he'd got him. It was there he defeated him. There is the masterpiece of it all. So the apostle Paul, in writing to the Colossians, is able to say that it was in the cross above everywhere else that he triumphed over all these powers. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them by it. The devil defeated and routed, ridiculed before the whole cosmos by the death of the Son of God and his subsequent resurrection. Now then, my friends, that is his claim and that is how he substantiates his claim. But let me close by putting it to you like this so that you may see how practical this message is. How does Christ establish this kingdom? And it's here, of course, you've got the greatest misunderstanding because here the mystery is the greatest. How does he bring in this kingdom? The first answer I've got to give is a negative one. He doesn't do it outwardly. That's the thing he said, you remember, to Pontius Pilate. Are you a king, says Pontius Pilate? Yes, I am, says Christ, but you don't understand what I mean by that. My kingdom, he says, is not of this world. You only understand worldly, earthly kingdoms. I am a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. And this needs to be emphasized today. He said again, you'll find it in Luke chapter 17 verse 20. The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. The kingdom of God, he means, cometh not by some outward show. Now that was the great mistake of the Jews. They looked for the kingdom of God to come with an outward appearance, an outward show, by observation. Everybody makes this mistake. The Jews did. They thought he'd come as a great king and deliver them and set up his throne in Jerusalem, always materializing everything. He says it doesn't come like that. You will read in the Gospel of John in Chapter 6 and verse 15, that after he'd worked the miracle of feeding the 5,000, they came by force and tried to make him a king. They came and they were going to capture him and hustle him off to Jerusalem that he might set himself up as a king. They tried by force to take him and to make him a king, but he wouldn't. He went up into a mountain himself alone. Even poor John the Baptist fell into this particular trap sent his two messengers out, though he that should come, or do we look for another? If you're the king, what are you staying up there in Galilee for? Why don't you go down to Jerusalem? If you're the king, why do you spend your time with a handful of poor, ignorant people? Why not come up and address the authorities? If you're a king, men, exert yourself. Show your authority. Take your throne and reign. Back goes the message, John, this is what I'm doing. Have you forgotten the writing of the prophets? Work it out for yourself. And you know, a most astonishing thing of all, Even the very inner circle of his own apostles and disciples, even they misunderstood the whole thing, being assembled together with them, he commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father. He appeared to them, among whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs. And he began again speaking to them of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. This is even after the resurrection, remember. And then when they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Always materializing... Is is this the time that you're going to restore the kingdom? Are we all suddenly going to be put into the chief positions? Is it? Ah, he says, you don't understand. That's not the way it's coming now. What does all this mean? Well, I'm emphasizing that you must get rid at the present time of this outward show of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is not political. Political. Oh, this has been the tragic blunder of the centuries. The kingdom of God doesn't come by force of arms. That's Mohammedanism. It's not Christianity. Christianity fell into the trap. The Crusades, in my opinion, fell into this very trap. The Crusaders. You can't make people Christian by the power of the sword. You can't make people Christian by acts of parliament either. You can't Christianize a country. You can do what you like in your parliaments. That doesn't promote Christianity. It doesn't come with outward show. It's not of this world. It doesn't come with observation. How does it come? Oh, it comes secretly. This is the mystery of the kingdom. You go home and read tonight the 13th chapter of the gospel according to St. Matthew, and you'll find that it's full of parables concerning the mystery of the kingdom. People didn't understand it. You see, they wanted that outward, external. They still do. But it isn't like that, it's a mystery. And it's the mystery of this kingdom working amongst individuals. He says, do you want to know what the kingdom of God is like? Well, it's not like a great king setting up a great army and attacking a foe and conquering him and setting himself up over all. It isn't that. It isn't politicians trying to legislate the Sermon on the Mount and talking politics always. It isn't that. What's it like? Well, he said, you know, it's like a sower sowing seed into the ground. That's the kingdom of God. It's a word. It's a message. It's something that goes to the hearts of men. Or it's like leaven, a bit of uh, leaven that a woman takes and puts in a measure of flour. Or it's like a man going out with a dragnet and drawing in fish, some good, some bad. Or it's like a man uh, in a field stumbles across a hidden treasure when he wasn't looking for it. Or it's like a merchantman seeking goodly pearls. And at last he finds a pearl that so valuably sells everything in order that he may get it. That's the kingdom of God, the mystery. And it grows secretly, it grows quietly. There's no great outward show, there's no military victory, there's no political enactment. The world says nothing's happening. You people are preaching, but what's taking place? Oh, the blindness of mankind. This is a mystery. It happens in the hearts of men. It happens in the individual conscience. It happens in a life changed, and the great world knows nothing about it. It won't be in the headlines tomorrow, but it's registered in heaven. That's the mystery of the kingdom. The mystery of a kingdom that cometh not with observation. When they say to you, lo here or lo there, don't believe them. He says, the kingdom of God is amongst you. It's here now, but you don't see it. It's this influence. It's this thing that takes hold of a man and delivers him out of this present evil world. It's this thing that translates a man out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear, of God's dear son. It's this amazing change that takes place in a man's heart and in the depths and vitals of his personality that we were talking about a fortnight ago, the rebirth. So our Lord says in his prayer for his disciples at the end, I ask not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but I ask that thou shouldest keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world, but they're still in it, remember? You're in the world, you're not of it. You've been taken out of its kingdom, into the kingdom of God. You live in this world, but you belong somewhere else. That's the glory of this kingdom. Our citizen, says Paul, is in heaven. That's the kingdom we belong to. Our citizenship is in heaven. From whence also we expect the Savior. I'm a citizen of Great Britain and I'm here to keep its laws but I don't belong to it. I belong to heaven. There's my citizenship. That's the place I belong to. That's the place I'm going to and to spend my eternity My citizenship is in heaven. This is the victory that overcometh the world, says John. Even our faith. We are still in it but we don't belong to it. Without the world realizing what's happening, we've been moved, we've been changed. Our whole allegiance is entirely different. Even as when the Son of God came into the world, the world knew nothing. The rich people, the big people, the great people were packing the hotels, the inns of those days in Bethlehem. They may have heard a rumor that a poor girl had come up pregnant at the last moment given birth to a babe, what is that? They were discussing this new enactment of Augustus Caesar, who'd sent out a new decree and edict to tax the whole world. That's what they were talking about. And the world is still talking about it tonight. 15% duty increasing income tax. These are the things that matter. And they don't know that the power of God and the salvation is here and is changing men and women, delivering them from a life that only lives in terms of ready reckoners. And how much I've got to pay and how much can I cheat and how much can I have to spend on my flesh, eating and drinking and my sex. Deliverance from that. The world knows nothing about it. But that's how the kingdom of God is being established and that's how it's been increasing. This has been going on, you know, for nearly 2,000 years. And it will go on until when? Well, here it is, Matthew twenty-four, fourteen, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness to all nations. And then shall come the end. Here he is. Nearly 2,000 long years ago, the carpenter of Nazareth, this fellow who's never had any training and who has no learning, he says, this gospel that I'm preaching to you and have been preaching to you for three years, this is going to be preached as a witness to all the nations of the world, every one of them. Why? Why? Well, because that is the way in which the kingdom of God is being built up. Not by armies, not by acts of parliament, not by political reformations. The work of the Spirit of God, changing men, translating them out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. And it's going on in all nations. And it's going to gather men and women out of all nations and tribes and languages, whether they're black or white or pink, it makes no difference. Out of all nations building up the kingdom, and it'll go on until it has been preached like this unto all nations for a witness and a testimony. Then cometh the end. And then when the end comes, the kingdom of God will come with observation. Then he will come in a visible manner, Even as he ascended up on Mount Olivet, he'll come again in bodily form and every eye shall see him and he will manifest himself to the universe and he will come in judgment. Oh yes, he's coming again as he came the first time. The first advent reminds us of the second advent. He will come, he will so come in like manner, even as you have seen him going. King of kings, Lord of lords, riding the clouds of heaven, surrounded by all the holy angels, he will come and judge the world in righteousness. This is a part of his own message, a part of his own gospel. He's taught it, he's prophesied it, and all his prophecies hitherto have been verified, and this shall be. And you know, my friends, when he comes, he will judge in righteousness. And all that belongs to the devil and his followers will be cast into a lake of perdition forever and ever. The kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, as certainly as we are here. The elements will melt with a fervent heat. The whole universe will be purged from this bondage of corruption. There's a day coming when even creation will be renovated. Nature will no longer be red in tooth and claw. The lion shall lie down with the lamb and the wolf shall feed with the ox. And even the serpents will become harmless. A little child will be able to handle them. Even creation is going to be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Oh yes, the universe is going to be restored to God, uh, to a belief in him, to a submission to him, to an obedience to him. A glad obedience, a joyful obedience. Men redeemed will live to his glory and his praise and will rejoice in it. There shall be a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. And those who believe the gospel of the kingdom shall be in that kingdom of glory with him, reigning with him, rejoicing with him, spending their eternity in that glory that baffles description. Jesus shall reign where'er the sun doth his successive journeys run. His kingdom stretch from shore to shore till moon shall wax and wane no more. He'll destroy all his enemies, how? With the breath of his nostrils. A word will be enough. And everything in heaven and on earth and under the earth shall be restored by him to its original glory and even beyond that. And after that, He will hand it all back to his glorious Father. Let us leave it with these ringing glorious words of the Apostle Paul. Then cometh the end. When he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God even the Father. When he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him. It is manifest that he is accepted which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him. Then shall the son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him. That God may be all in all. He came to do that. He is doing it. He will finish and complete the work. And the kingdom of God shall cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. My friend, the one question for you and for me is this. Are you in this kingdom? Who's governing your life? It's either the devil or else it's God. How do you react to the commandments of God? Do you hate them? Are they grievous? Do you dislike them? If so, you belong to the devil and you'll receive the destruction that is awaiting him and all belong to him. All his kingdom is going to be destroyed. Or can you say with the apostle John his commandments are not grievous? I delight to do thy will, O God. If you long to serve God and to obey him and to keep his commandments, you're in his kingdom. For the kingdom of God is the place in which men live for him and for his glory and for his praise and delight in keeping his commandments. Are you in the kingdom of God? It's good news. This world is not going to go on like this forever. It's all going to be changed. It's all going to be made glorious. Would you like to be in that glory and sharing it? Very well, repent as he says. Repent, acknowledge your sin. Acknowledge your enmity to God. Acknowledge your beastly self-righteousness. Acknowledge your human trust in yourself and in other men. Get down, admit it, confess it, grovel in the dust beneath him and tell him that you deserve nothing but damnation. Repent. But go on to believe the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God which is opened to us by the very Son of God himself who in order that we might enter it and enjoy it for all eternity, became a babe and even died on the cross and was buried, but rose again and is preparing a place for us. Repent and believe the gospel. And you will become a citizen of the kingdom which can never be shaken, the everlasting kingdom of God. Blessed be God for the good news of the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ, his Son. Amen. The closing hymn is hymn number 325, 325. Hark the song of jubilee, loud as mighty thunders roar, or the fullness of the sea when it breaks upon the shore? three hundred and twenty-five